Good afternoon. Welcome to Book Sandwiched In. I'm Maggie Carini with the Friends of the Library. Today, we welcome Dr. Oleg Manayev, who is Global Security Fellow at the University of Tennessee Institute for Nuclear Security for a discussion of The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin by Masha Gessen. Thank you. Hello, everyone. So let me say that not only the White House and the Congress, the Department of State and the Pentagon, mass media and civil activists, but many fellow Americans think and talk about Russia today. Was it really meddling in the 2016 election and colluded with the Trump campaign? Does it seriously treat United States and the existing world order and more fundamental question, why, after collapse of communism and the end of the Cold War 25 years ago, instead of building democracy, market economy, and the rule of law, Russia has built a new aggressive autocracy? You know, last summer I spent some months in Washington, D.C., working in the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies, located right between the White House and the Congress. And believe me, I've heard these questions almost every day. So let me start with some quotes about Russia and its President Vladimir Putin provided by some high U.S. authorities. First, 2001, President George W. Bush issued a truly astonishing appraisal for Vladimir Putin. I looked the man in his eye and found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy. We had a very good dialogue. I was able to get a sense of his soul a man deeply committed to his country and the best interest of his country. So it happened 16 years ago. Next. A little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> President Barack Obama once linked Vladimir Putin to a bored boy at the back of the desk and described Russia as a regional power that threatens its immediate neighbors because of strength, but because of weakness. New one. Very recently, it was taken in Gamburg in July this year. In September 15, Donald Trump tells Bill O'Reilly, whom you know, I guess, that Putin gets an A for leadership. I, quote. I will tell you that I think in terms of leadership, is getting an A, and our president is not doing so well. So very recent estimation. But there are different estimations as well. December 16, Senator John McCain stated his concern about the position of the Trump against Russia and President Vladimir Putin, recalling that Putin is not the man to underestimate. Vladimir Putin is a bandit, a killer, an agent of the KGB. Let's call Vladimir Putin what he is. Does this mean that you don't have to deal with him or talk with him? Of course, you talk to him, but you must do it, as did Ronald Reagan, and from a position of strength. And the very recent one, it happened just 10 days ago, in the Hillary Clinton recent book, What Happened, Putin and Russia, as calculated by the conservative side of Daily Courier, are mentioned a total 333 times in one book. According to Clinton, I quote, Putin has positioned himself as the leader of an authoritarian, xenophobic, international movement that wants to expel migrants, destroy the European Union, weaken the Atlantic Alliance, and reverse most of the progressive changes that have been achieved since World War II. So let's to the book. Some words about prehistory of why and how Putin appears in the political scene. 
Michael Gorbachev had become the leader of the Soviet state in March 1985, and in 1986 introduced perestroika, or restructuring, of the state and the society. Next year, he advanced another new term, glasnost, or openness. To be sure, Gorbachev didn't intend to dissolve the Soviet Union or to end the Communist Party's rule, or really to change the regime in a radical way. Rather, he dreamed of modernizing the Soviet economy and the Soviet society in discrete ways, without undermining their basic structures. But the process he set in motion led inevitably and in retrospect very rapidly to the total collapse of the whole Soviet system. In August 1991, a group of Soviet federal ministers led by Gorbachev vice president attempted to remove him from the office with the ostensible goal of saving the USSR from destruction. The coup failed, the USSR fell apart, and Gorbachev lost power anyway. Boris Yeltsin, president of Russia, succeeded Gorbachev and in December 1991 signed a historical agreement on dissolution of the Soviet Union with President of Ukraine and Chairman of Belarus Supreme Soviet. He started to introduce political democracy and economy and establish close relations with Western countries. But after a few years of enthusiasm for freedom and new prospects of the country, the country was battered, traumatized, and disappointed. It had experienced hope and unity in the late 1980s and placed its faith in Boris Yeltsin, the only Russian leader in history to have been freely elected. In return, the people of Russia got hyperinflation that swallowed up their life saving in a matter of months. Bureaucrats and entrepreneurs who stole from the state and from one another in plain sight and economic and social inequality on a scale they have never known since Bolshevik Revolution 100 years ago. Worst of all, many and possibly most Russians lost any sense of certainty in their future, and with it, the sense of unity that had carried them through the 1980s and early 90s. The Yeltsin government had made the grave mistake of not addressing the country's pain and fear Consider the people too dumb to engage in any discussion about reform. It happens in many countries. <laughs> the people of Russia, essentially abandoned by their leaders in their how of pain, sought solace in nostalgia, not so much in communist ideology, which had used up in inspirational potential decades earlier, but in a lodging to regain Russia's superpower world status. By 1999, there was a plausible aggression in their air and this was a large part of the reason Yeltsin and the family group around him were rightly terrified. There is the context where Vladimir Putin came in. The family, this is tiny group, so-called around Yeltsin, was casting about for success, end of 1999. Anyone with any real political capital and ambition, anyone with a personality commensurate with the office had already abandoned Yeltsin. By this time, Putin was the head of FSB, Russian secret police, its notorious successor of KGB. His ranks was quite low. He had left active duty as lieutenant colonel and had received an automatic upgrade to colonel while in reserve. Boris Berezovsky, the most influential Russian oligarch and member of the Yeltsin family, considered Putin as a successor to Yeltsin. He seemed to assume that the very qualities that had kept them at arm's length would make Putin an ideal candidate. And what did Yeltsin himself know about his soon-to-be-announced success? He knew this was one of the few men who had remained loyal to him. 
loyalty is number one criteria. He knew he was a different generation, unlike many others, Putin had not come up through the ranks of Communist Party and had not therefore had to publicly switch allegiance when the Soviet Union collapsed. He looked different. All those men, without exception, were heavyset, and it seemed permanently wrinkled. Putin slim, small, and by now in the habit of wearing well-cut European suits looks much more like the new Russia Yeltsin had promised his people 10 years earlier. Yeltsin also knew that Putin would not allow the prosecution or prosecution of his, himself once he retired. It was a very important consideration to take in mind. So he appointed Putin as a prime minister from director of FSB or KGB. Just a few weeks after, in August, September 1999, Moscow and other Russian cities has been terrorized by a series of explosions. Hundreds of people died and much more were injured. Panic set all over the country. In a country striking with fear and grief, no one doubts that it was Chechens, people of North Caucasian Republic fighting with Russia for independence, had done it. Some days later, a group of 24 governors, more than a quarter of all governors in the Federation, wrote a letter to President Yeltsin asking him to yield power to Putin, who was prime minister. The same day, Yeltsin issued a secret decree authorizing the army to resume combat in Chechnya. The following day, Putin, as a prime minister, issued his own order authorizing Russian troops to engage in combat in Chechnya and made one of his first television appearances. He said, we will hunt them down, he said, on the terrorists. Wherever we find them, we will destroy them, even if we find them in the toilet. Putin was using rhetoric markedly different from Yeltsin's. He was not promising to bring the terrorists to justice, not about that, nor was he expressing compassion to the hundreds of victims of the explosions. This was the language of a leader who was planning to rule with his fist. These sorts of vulgar statements, often spiced with below-the-belt humor, would become Putin's signature oratorical device until now. So his popularity began to soar immediately. On the eve of New Year 2000, Yeltsin declared his early resignation and introduced Putin as now acting president. A new presidential election was scheduled for late March. This was, as the author of the book noted, non-campaign campaign, leading to a non-election campaign. <laughs> Putin understood the world patriotism just the way he had been taught in all those KGB schools. What does it mean? The country is as great as the fear is inspires, and the media should be loyal. The author believes, the author of the book, Masha Gerson, believes the Secret Service has most likely been behind the deadly bombing that shook Russia and helped make Putin to become a leader. The FSB would have been the explosions intended to unite Russians in fear and a desperate desire for a new, decisive, even aggressive leader who would spare an enemy. So who was and who is Putin? Vladimir Putin was born in Leningrad on October 7, 1952. They often describe the future president's parents as disabled men seriously wounded in the Soviet-German war and a woman who had come very close to dying from starvation during the siege of Leningrad. The courtyard is a central fixture of post-war Soviet life and Vladimir Putin's personal methodology is very much rooted in it. With adults working a six-day week and childcare generally non-existent, Soviet children tended to grow up in the communal spaces outside their overcrowded apartment buildings. In Putin's case, this means growing up 
at the bottom of the well in the well courtyard that is sewn with litter and populated by tufts. But to Putin, his thug credential represented true status, flaunted to his responses to his biographies one year later. He said, I was no pioneer, that is communist in Asia, I was a hooligan. Then he found Sambo, a kind of a Soviet martial art, hand of judo, karate, and folk wrestling moves that became part of Putin's transformation from a great school thug into a goal-directed and hard-working adolescent. Decades later, it will help him to provide a mature image. At the age of 16, uh, when other boys was wanted to become a cosmonaut, he dreamed of being a KGB officer, being in the secondary school. At the age of 16, a year before finishing the school, he went to the KGB headquarters in Leningrad to try to sign up. 16, boy. But KGB officers said that usually they don't sign up volunteers. Then Putin gained admission to the law school of the Leningrad University, and in his fourth year, he had got an offer he dreamed of. After joining KGB, he described his job to a best friend as an, I'm an expert in human relations. I'm an expert in human relations, and he is still an expert in that, <laughs> on the global level. I was most amazed by how a single intelligence officer could rule over the fates of thousands of people, he told his biographies. The internal ideology of KGB, as of many police organizations, rested on a clear concept of the enemy. But at that time, the only active enemies were the dissidents, a handful of brave souls who drew a disappropriate amount of KGB force. According to one of his colleagues who defected to the West, Putin worked, or started his career, for the fifth directorate created to fight the dissidents. Then, at age of 33, he was sent to Dresden in East Germany, where his job was to draft future undercover agents. Watching the changes in Germany and his own country in late 1980s from afar, Putin must have felt a hopeless, helpless fury. Everything he had worked for was now in doubt. Everything he had believed was being mocked. When Putin's return to Leningrad in late 1990, they carried a 20-year-old washing machine given to them by their former neighbors in, Western, in Eastern Germany, and the sum of money in the US dollars sufficient to buy the best Soviet-made car available. This was all they had to show for four and a half years of living abroad and Vladimir Putin's unconsummated spy career. Could there have been a worse way to return to the Soviet Union? Pain left betrayed by his country and his corporate the only important affiliation he had ever known. According to his autobiography, sometime later he resigned from KGB and became assistant chancellor for foreign relations in his alma mater of the Leningrad State University. Just a few months later, Anatoly Sobchak, a famous democratic figure of perestroika and law professor who became a chairman of Leningrad City Council, then mayor, invited his former students to become his deputy for foreign relations. Putin himself said it was just luck, but, another, but the author believes he was assigned to Sobchak by the KGB in order to infiltrate the inner circle of one of the country's leading pro-democratic politicians. In 1996, after his boss was not re-elected, an old Leningrad apparatchik now working in the Kremlin remembered Putin and arranged a good post for him in Moscow, 1996, 21 years ago. Putin became a deputy head of the Presidential Property Management Office, which sounds very much like another KGB active reserve posting, 
Once again, he had a job with little public responsibility, if not at all, but a lot of access within the state apparatus machine. Some years later, he was appointed by President Yeltsin as the head of FSB. So how Putin started his career as a president? In early 1990s, members of new business and political elites were hacking apart the old system all over Russia. They were without a doubt appropriating and redistributing chunks of the system. At the same time, the most enterprising of them were also conjuring up a new system and changing with it. People like Boris Berezovsky, whom I mentioned, an academic taunt car dealer, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, a Komsomol functionary turned banker turned oil man, Michael Prokhorov, a clothing reseller turned metal mogul turned international investor, Vladimir Gusinsky, an important turned banker and media magnate, were self-intended entrepreneurs who started with shady money-making schemes, but as their worldview expanded and their ambitions grew accordingly, began to position themselves as not only businessmen, but philanthropes, civic leaders, and visionaries. As their view evolved, they invested money and energy in constructing a new political system with use of influential mass media they owned. Most of them became close to the Yeltsin family. People called them Russian oligarchs. Like most Soviet citizens of his generation, Putin was never a political idealist. He replaced belief in communism, which no longer seemed plausible or even possible with faith in institutions. He loved the Soviet Union, and he loved KGB. And then he had power of his own, effectively running the financial system of the country's second largest city when he was in Leningrad. He wanted to build a system just like them. It would be a closed system, a system built on total control, especially control over the flow of information, the flow of money. It would be a system that aimed to exclude dissent and would crush if it appeared. But in the one way, the system would be better than the KGB and the USSR had been. This one would not betray Putin. It would be too smart and too strong for that. So Putin worked uh, diligently to centralize control not only over all foreign trade, but also over business that was springing up domestically. He also eventually moved to manage the city's relationship with the media, both printed electronic, which he alternatively isolated from the city hall, from the commissioners, and strong-armed into covering public stories in particular ways. When Putin became a president, he began to introduce the same system at the national level. And oligarch, who became rich and influential under Yeltsin rule, became a serious obstacle to his personal power. Just some months after his inauguration, Putin started making pressure on both oligarchs and independent media using various administrative, legal, and financial tools. Boris Berezovsky, who suggested him to be a candidacy for presidency to Yeltsin, lost his TV channel one, as well as many other assets worth billions of dollars, then emigrated to UK and some years after committed suicide in London. Vladimir Gusinsky lost his NTV, independent TV channel, other assets and emigrated to Spain. Michael Khodorkovsky lost Yukos, the most profitable oil company in Russia, worth over $12 billion, and was sentenced for 10 years in jail, and he spent 10 years in jails. Michael Prokhorov, who established a new political party and was Putin's rival at the 2012 presidential election, was forced to disappear from the political scene under the threat of losing business and freedom. Finally, the old oligarch connected to Yeltsin were replaced by what, by whom? By the new ones connected to Putin.
Fight with corruption was one of the most important Putin's promises during his presidential election campaign in year 2000. But since then, every year, Russia slide lower on the corruption perception index of the watchdog group Transparency International. By year 2011, human rights activists estimated that fully 15% of the Russian prison population was made of entrepreneurs who had been thrown behind bars by well-connected competitors who used their court system to take over their people's businesses. 15% of the whole imprisoned. The author quotes some anonymous Russian political expert who estimate Putin's personal net worth as a, over $40 billion. The media, freed after the collapse of communism, again turned into a tool for governmental propaganda. As one of new favorite of the state media explained his position to Masha Gessen, I quote, a country like Russia needs the sort of TV that can effectively deliver the government's message. As the state grows stronger, Go, grow stronger, it needs to convey message directly with no interpretation. The logic is simple. It's still, quote, we are a state TV company. Our state is a presidential republic. This means we do not criticize the president. At the same time, the most popular influential independent journalists like Yuri Shikhachikhin, Anna Politkovskaya, Paul Hlebnikov, and dozens of them were killed or died under strange circumstances. So six from the 11 decrees Putin issued in his first two months as acting president concerned the military. One of them established a new Russian military doctrine, abandoning the old no-first-strike policy regarding nuclear weapons and emphasizing the right to use them against aggressors. Another one increased defense spending by 50%, and this is in the country that was still failing to meet the, its international debt obligation and was seeing most of its population sink further into poverty. In future, it will contribute to militaristic, nationalistic, revanchistic discourse dominated public space in today Russia. <coughs> Take a look, it happened just 10 days ago. The statement of Lieutenant General Michael Kalashnikov, you know Kalashnikov machine gun? It's number one machine gun in the whole world. So, was unveiled in September 19 in Moscow to the sounds of Russian military folk music and orthodox prayers. It how is going on now. After taking the president's office, signed his first decree and proposed a set of bills, all of them aimed, as he stated, at strengthening vertical power. What does it mean? One of them replaced elected members of the upper house of the parliament with appointed ones. Another bill allowed elected governors to be removed from office on mere suspicion of wrongdoing without a court decision. The decree established presidential envoys to seven large territories of the country appointed by the president who would supervise the work of elected governors. So 80, almost 90 governors and seven Putin personal envoys. Five from the seven envoys were military police and KGB generals. Putin continued using terrorist attacks in Russia to dismantle democracy and strengthen his personal power. Thus, some days after a notorious terrorist attack on a school in North Caucasus in September 2004, which caused 330 deaths, mostly children, he gathered the cabinet, his own staff, and all 89 governors together. I am convinced, he stated, that the unity of the country is the main condition of success in the fight against terrorism. Does it remind you something? He announced, from now on, 
governors should be not elected but appointed. He himself would appoint them as the mayor of Moscow as well. Now, would members of the low house of the parliament be directly elected as half of them had been? Now Russian citizens would cast their votes in favor of political parties, which would then fill their seats with ranking members. The threshold of getting a share of the seats in the parliament would be raised from 5% to 7%. And finally, proposed legislation would now pass through a filter before entering the lower house. The president would personally appoint so-called public chamber to review all the bills. After these changes became law, as they did at the end of 2004, there remained only one federal level public official who was directly elected. I think you understand who. The president himself, the only. When Putin's second term was drawing to a close in 2007, he held a televised meeting with the leaders of four puppet parties, who together declared they wanted to nominate Prime Minister and former Putin's chief of staff, Dmitry Medvedev, for president. Once inaugurated in spring 2008, Medvedev appointed Putin his prime minister. Some months after, presidency terms was extended from four years to six years. When Medvedev's first term was drawing in the close in 2011, the ruling party United Arte, led by him, nominated Prime Minister Putin for president again. But it's as if from the start, from the very beginning. In March 2012, Putin was elected for six years, and everyone today expects he will be re-elected for the second six years term in March next year. Thus, such a short castling became an effective tool to maintain power in one hand. Mass protest against fraud of, of election, general election in winter 2011 and spring 2012, as well as a second orange revolution in Ukraine, which author of the book briefly described but not analyzed, seriously frightened Putin and prompted him to solve growing internal problems through foreign policy. Annexation of Crimea and a hybrid war in eastern Ukraine, aggressive promotion of the Russian war abroad, meddling to the political process in the Western countries, including US last year election, began to threaten the world order and therefore Russia's internal problems must be seriously analyzed. My point is that when I you know, provided you two clips that uh, Putin, as well as Russia, is much more complicated issue and image and story than just described in this book. To sum up, I'd like to tell you what, on my personal view, the book missed. First, many of authors' conclusions about Putin, his involvement into crimes and corruption, for example, are not supported by serious evidences, just quotes or references to other opponents to Putin's regime. This is an interesting and even passionate journalism but not a well-ground analysis that could be used in a high-level decision-making process. Secondly, speaking about protests in Moscow in December 2011, the author asked a rhetoric question. Who is going to brave this kind of weather to fight the hopeless fight for democracy? And gives the answer, everyone, at least everyone I know. So this is a typical human delusion. When you analyze social process, you can't rely on your personal experience only. As a professional sociologist and poster who spent most part of my life there, not here, you know, I faced these delusions many times. And the third and most important, the author reduces problems of modern Russia to the power of Putin and explains the power of Putin by the almost infernal qualities of his character. This is 
as if we would explain reasons of the World War II by personal character of Hitler and Stalin or Roosevelt and Churchill. Why Putin gets support and even adoration of millions of Russians today? Just because of lying violence? And this is lasting over 17 years. Let me remind Napoleon's famous saying, all you can do with bayonets, but you can't sit on them. The very definition of Putin as the accidental president or unlikely rise provided by Masha Gessen on my opinion is wrong. In this regard, he is not an accidental biological president and his rise was quite likely because his policy expresses the expectations, fears and hopes of millions of people and became Russia's response to the collapse of communism and dissolution of the Soviet Union. Just some figures, the results of public opinion poll conducted by independent post organization in Russia. 1992, 80% of Russians loved you, now 81% hate you. 60% consider you as a threat. In case of war, Russians are sure that they will defeat you. So they are ready for that. Nuclear weapons. I approve. This is the only way to talk with the West. They only understand you when you came from a position of strength. Each second Russian consider that. Is it due just because of Putin? No. What does accession of Crimea into Russia indicate in your opinion? Just two months after annexation. 80% Russia is returning its traditional role of a great power versus 9% that is your position. And as a result, Vladimir Putin's approval rating from 69 to 89 due to this aggressive foreign policy that substitutes the internal problems. Very clever approach. And the very last to complete. The former acting head of the main intelligence director of the Ukraine Security Service, Ukraine now is fighting with Russia, was recently asked on the national TV, if Putin plays, turns out to be someone else, will this be fundamental importance for Ukraine or not? Or in other words, does everything depend on this man? The answer, not in the current course of Russia's development. Actually, it was not Putin who made Russia, but the way it is, but Russia made Putin. Therefore, we will be with Russia on knives as long as it exists in the current borders while it will dominate us. Thank you so much for your attention. I'm not the author, but I try you know, to respond to your questions. Can you explain the disintegration of the Russian attitude towards Americans? I mean, based on your graph there, it has really gone downhill. Can you explain why? Yeah, thanks, very good question. It's a long explanation, but very briefly speaking, just after collapse of the Soviet Union and communism, as you know, I mentioned at the beginning, introducing the book, most of Russians had a real enthusiasm to the West because they were fed up of communism, fed up of poverty, fed up of total control of their social and political life. And they expected that in some years from that period after, and collapse was 1991, 
In some years, they would easily transform the country and themselves to, let's say, American or Western European standards. Not only in terms of political democracy, market economy, you know, social life and uh, salaries and all this stuff. And when they realized that it did not happen, and uh, secondly, they relied to great extent on the support. You know, the thinking, I try you know, to get inside the uh, average Russian head of, let's say, 1992, 1995. The average, I'm not speaking about ruling elite or uh, oligarchs or Kremlin people. They're thinking, aha, uh -huh, they, the West, you in a sense, asked us or demanded us or pressed us, whatever you define, to forget about our, let's say, 75 years. Communist, terror, Stalin, all this stuff. Okay, we're ready. And if we agreed, you know, to forget about our life, our history, our culture, our advantages, you know, you know defeating Nazis and so on, we expect some support, financial, moral, whatever. And beginning of 90s, there were some support, not like Marshall Plan after the Second World War in Europe, but a little bit. But then the West and the United States, in a sense, decided that it's done, institutions are there, Yeltsin is there, you know, democratic government is there, let's go to China, to Afghanistan, to the moon, to uh -huh. somewhere else. And many people who start starving and suffering of consequences of, you know, this house, and of course because of corruption of new government or new democratic government, they felt like Putin, that the world, the democratic world, United States as well as a leader of democratic world, betrayed them, cheated them. And they said, aha, you're cheating us. We'll come back to our foundations, psychological, cultural, institutional, state, religious, whatever. And that's why Putin appeared and got support. And as soon as you know, Putin at the very beginning, remember that 9-11, he was the first leader who called to George W. Bush and supported him after this tragic event. So I mean, his intentional first steps at foreign policy was somehow to continue establishing and strengthening relation with the West. But as soon as he realized that the general mood in the country, his electorate radically changed, he changed as well. That's my guess. And as more history developed after that time, I mean, late 90s, early zeros, as more Russians got more and more and more angry that they are losing and the rest of the world are getting and they're getting hard because, you know, we decided to, to follow that. We will go our own way again. That's my explanation, very generally speaking. Yes, please. My question is regarding our current political situation. And that question is, why are so many Americans willing to give up their current freedom to try to elect someone of a strong man? And when you look at Steve Bannon, who has uh, admittedly said, I'm a Leninist, and maybe many people don't remember what a Leninist is, and I want to tear down the current system and you look at that and say, why are we willing to do that? Why are we willing to tear down what we have and give it away to some guy we think is going to make it bigger and better? I mean, that's the same reasoning for voting for uh, any, any other dictator. So I'm just curious, why are we doing that? And why are we so passionate about doing it? 
Yeah, thank you. You know, unfortunately, I'm not specialist in, in American issues and American <laughs> policy. No, of course, I know. I live here. I was invited here by UT in May 2015, so I live here two years and a half, and I strictly follow the politics last year, you know, all the campaign and so on. Uh, but, you know, my, my, my guess, responding to your question, as a foreigner, of course, not as a, someone who belongs to this society and the culture and the history yet, uh, is that, and I'm very frank to you, this American society as well as Western European society as well is deeply divided by different criteria, not specifying what kind, divided. Social, economic, ethnical, rational, different kind of. And due to some factors, we could you know, talk about them until next morning, uh, due to some factors, uh, many people from both sides did not note that or make appearance if they did note that, both sides. Republicans criticized Democrats more and more and more compared, let's say, with 70s or 80s compared to what, what we have now. And Democrats uh, criticized Republicans. And dozens of millions of people were, you know, maybe some of them still are fed up of this kind of development, and especially you know, inland America. And as soon as the chance, as soon as they got the chance last year, and they got this candidate who somehow promised them, who expressed what really they feel about various issues, political correctness, many, many, many things. I'm not speaking who was right, who is correct. I'm speaking about you know my per perception as a foreigner, what's going on here, trying to you know, answer a question. So the country is divided. Let me remind you that the uh, 60, almost three million people last November voted in favor of Donald Trump and 65 something a little bit more in favor of uh, in favor of Hillary Clinton and the, it's not surprising because you know there were a lot of cases like that maybe in your history but what really surprising that until now and that time just after voting day many Democrats those who belong to those 65 million did not believe that 63 million voted in favor of Trump, this strange agenda, and so and vice versa. And in a sense, on my personal perception, this gap is not breached yet by various reasons. And that's why I guess that there are some similarities between, not maybe on political level, but some I don't know, cultural, social, between what's going on in Russia or that part of the world and the United States. And the only one thing that I can tell you <laughs> to warn to some extent, please don't ignore this kind of unpleasant, not very comfortable process in politics, in your social structure and so on. Um, try somehow to talk to these people, at least to take in mind that there are other people with different views and you know they also um, show that they're right and somehow to, as soon as you have time, somehow you know, to bridge these gaps and you know to unite the country again around some very general issues there are a lot of general issues that's my point thank you about ukraine you know the media portraying about ukraine you mean american media about ukraine yeah yeah okay. american media is that ukraine is sort of a battleground between east and west between russia and and the west that the current administration the current government in ukraine is uh, its drift toward the west you know, as a threat to Russia, and that's the reason the Russians, you know, annexed Crimea and the, and the carrying on the war in the east. 
And I'm wondering if you could amplify that, amplify what is actually, from your point of view, happening in Ukraine. Thanks. It's another very important and very long-to-be-responded question. In fact, yes, there is, a, regardless of the coverage of American media, or Japanese, or even Russian, regardless of only any kind of coverage, yes, there is a sort of war, we call it hybrid war, so it means it's not official war declared by one, one state, for example, Russia against Ukraine, and especially at the first day there was no uh, official military troops on the territory of Ukraine, but a lot of so-called separatist, so it's Ukrainian who wanted to get independence to different extent from the central government in Kyiv and Ukraine, and they got support, different kind of support, all infrastructure and money and uh, um, staff and uh, weapon from, from, from Russia. There is a war and it is lasting. And uh, if, if you ask the question yourself or me or whoever, let's say, whose fault is it, who is right in this fighting, uh, you know, generally, of course, I agree with American coverage saying that, generally speaking, is this sort of aggression, direct or indirect, it's not so important. Even if it's not direct, they supported those who were inside the country. Anyway, it's, you know, sort of aggression, and it's, and it's, uh, try, it's an attempt to somehow, especially annexation of Crimea, it's uh, effort or attempt to really, as Hillary Clinton mentioned in her recent book, you know, to change the world order after the Second World War, in a sense. And by any means, international community and people inside Russia, people inside Ukraine, people here in the United States, the whole international community uh, should somehow to resist to that and try to stop Russia and stop separatists, even their Ukrainian citizens who are still fighting with, somehow to, to resolve all problems, social, military, political, whatever, legal, they still have their what is the concrete solution? There are a lot of different mechanisms uh, how to do that. But if you ask whose fault is that, it's more complicated question because Ukrainian society, as Russia in a sense, and as we just were talking, American in a sense, is divided, was and still divided as well. Ukraine is a huge country like France with that time over 50 million inhabitants. Western part were absolutely in favor of the you know, Western part of life in terms of political democracy, market economy, rule of law, you know, diversity, inclusiveness, all this stuff. And the Eastern part were in favor of Russian style of living, economy, whatever. When the Orange Revolution in the end of 19, uh, 2013 and beginning of 2014 won, a new government came to power to office, new, new president was elected, Petro Poroshenko, in May 2015. I'm sorry for this parallel. In a sense, they start the same policy as here in the West when they prefer not to put too much attention to something, to someone who disagree, saying that you should follow us, and tomorrow, maybe the day after tomorrow, everything will be fine. They didn't uh, even try somehow, you know, to resolve some local problems, to provide some, you know, local independence, not independence in terms of territory, but self-government, and so on and so far. And that's why people were getting more and more angry in those areas of the country, in East Ukraine and in Crimea. And Russia was not, you know, sleeping. It was just nearby, awaiting the good chance. And as soon as they realized there is a chance, to come here and to protect Russian-speaking population. It's one of very important 
part of concept of the Russian world that I mentioned, that Putin is his favorite last year, they immediately got there. And that's why when new government in Ukraine in spring 2015, during annexation process, when they ordered their military to fight with Russians, you know, to protect their land, they refused. 99% of them, they gave up. Because many of them, not all of them, but many of them, were, they, they felt this, let's say, balance. They were disappointed, they didn't think that the Russians are enemies and so on. And Russians, you know, took it easily. So it's a complicated issue, but nevertheless, uh, we should, all of us, I mean, those who live in this country, here in the West, should somehow try to resolve this problem and to protect the uh, Ukraine sovereignty, not only because of Ukraine, because many people here in America, somewhere in France, Japan, think, so what is Ukraine? It's someone, the other part of the globe, what is the, you know, what is the deal for them? No, I have a lot of my, pro my own problems. But as Hillary Clinton very you know, correctly mentioned, it's attempt, intention or not intention, it's not so important. Maybe it's not what exactly what Putin was thinking, but de facto, it is effort to change the balance, the world balance, the world's order that based during 70 how many years since the end of Second World War on very clear things. Territorial sovereignty, human rights inside the country, and so on and so on, democracy. That's my guess, thank you. Before you get away from us, we'd like to hear a little bit about your story. <laughs> my story. Uh, I was born in Russia, I'm 65 years old some years after the end of Second World War in Far East, in Vladivostok. And my parents were, uh, my father was military and journalist, and when I was almost 12, they moved to the west of Soviet Union, which is Belarus, where I'm from now. Belarus now is an independent country between Russia and Poland, so in the very geographical center of Europe that uh, your previous Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, called 15 years ago as the last dictatorship in Europe and after collapse of communism uh, in 1994, we elected Belarusian people, not me, elected a new president, Alexander Lukashenko. And much, much earlier, before Putin case, almost decade before Putin case, Lukashenko, you know, tested all these legal, administrative, economic, political, and so on and so far uh, tools and mechanism of establishing dictatorship. And then, in a sense, uh, Putin in Russia and some other dictators in uh, Mi Middle Asia republics, they just repeated this experience. And, uh, you know, from the very beginning, when I was a student of School of Journalism, I was dreaming about, you know, the democracy and uh, human rights and uh, market economy, so to live there, not immigrate here, but to live there like you live here. And as soon as it happened, I mean, collapse of communism, uh, myself and, you know, tiny circle of my friends, we try somehow to use this opportunity. And we established the first political party in Belarus. I established my own first independent institute, uh, which conducted opinion poll and used all this information, this, all this stuff, you know, to promote civil society, independence, democracy, and so on and so far. But uh, we have not succeeded. And as soon as the Belarusian uh, dictatorial government and Lukashenko himself getting stronger and stronger, 
and convincing themselves, like Putin who described in this book, they start making pressure on us and me personally. And during the last two decades, I was arrested and confiscated, and my institute and some other organizations were shut down by the Supreme Court. Of course, we got some support from international community, but uh, it was getting more worse and worse and worse and worse. So, you know, two years and a half ago, I was invited here. Maybe I stay here. Because, <laughs> because, you know, I love my country and I like, you know, to, to contribute, but, you know, I'm not 25, I'm not 45, I'm already 65, and it's getting more complicated, you know, to follow that way. And, uh, but I will try, if, even if, if I stay here, I will try somehow to contribute to the process in Russia, in Ukraine, in Belarus, you know, using that experience and knowledge that I'm, I'm getting here. That's my story. That's a good one. Thank you. Do you know if the Russian people are better off financially and in general under Putin's regime? Then who? Than they were under Yeltsin, say. Ah, yeah. Okay, this is very simple to answer. Of course, yes. Of course, yes. I mean, if, if we compare GDP of the country or monthly salary or, you know, different, you know, the, the service they could get from the health insurance, you know, it's better today, definitely, than 20 years ago. And this is one of the reasons why dozens of millions of Russians, not only because of, you know, hatred to America somewhere, they support Putin. But the reason of that is not only that Putin was very, you know, effective manager, in a sense he was, but because due to world marking for oil, you know, Russia, is number two after Arab countries and Saudi produce of oil and gas. No, mostly in Europe, of course, not the United States or Australia. And as soon as the world prices in late 90s go grow, as more Russian government got a lot of resources, there was no need, too much need, you know, to reform economy, to reform, you know, political systems, the legal and so on. They were just happy sitting Although when, you know, one barrel of uh, oil was over $100, I guess, you know, just three, four years ago. And it gave a lot of opportunity to the Russian rulers and Putin himself to do not everything, but a lot of things with the country. And of course, at the very last of this element of this chain, there were the Russian people, and they got much more salary and so on and so on. And, you know, to explain each one of 150 million Russians that it's not only due to Putin to, to, and to Kremlin, it's because of oil, because of, you know, it's too complicated you know, <laughs> to go to each one. Even here in America, it's, it's a big, big deal. Putin says he's got to protect the Russian-speaking people, yes. right, in other places, which has brought up a lot of worries in the former Baltic states because, of course, when that was part of the Soviet Union, many Russian-speaking people moved there. In fact, they wanted them to go there. Exactly. So a lot of people worry, is he going to use this as an excuse to start trying to go in there? I mean, you know, NATO masses, troops on the border. It seems to me this is going to be a hot spot. It's something I really am concerned about. I wondered what your opinion was. So this is just your concern? Oh, uh, well, is there, a reason? No, is there a reason? I mean, maybe this whole thing is overblown. Would he dare to try to think of facing NATO across the borders in those countries, do you think? So the question is about, you know, Putin's attitudes towards yeah, Putin's those Putin's attitudes, yeah. Is this going to be like the Ukraine? Is that, or he just feels safer? Okay, I've got, I've got, yeah, thank you. 
Uh, yes, there is a chance. But, you know, when, when, again, when we try to get inside the Putin's and, you know, dozens of billions of Russians' heads and minds. Yeah, it's hard. The question is, why not? Yeah, yeah try just, just to restore their thinking. Okay, there is some small countries, Baltic that you mentioned, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, yeah. that, you know, they're, they're now they are members of NATO and European Union after collapse of Soviet Union. So it's not part of, you know, Soviet realm anymore. But Russian thinking and Putin's as well. Okay, they are, they join our enemies. During decades, they were, you know, enemies. They called us uh, U.S. and uh, NATO monster. So they are there, first. Secondly, they, they live better than us. It's not only good as well to understand that someone who escaped is getting better than you. You get a jealousy. And that, thought, I think, uh, is the real issue. Yeah, the and, the issue. Thought, and the thought that you mentioned, there are still uh, hundreds of thousands of people, Russians or Russian-speaking, who live there. All in all, I guess it's more than one million in all three Baltic states. And due to some concrete, there is no time to, you know, to detalize all these things, due to some you know, concrete you know, politics provided by uh, national governments since the collapse of uh, Soviet Union and communism, uh, the Russian-speaking population are not, I would say, 100% equal to the national, to Estonians, Latvians, government. Is it, is it correct, not correct? You know, I'm not going to discuss that. There are pro and contra a lot of hundreds of arguments for both sides. But in fact, they're not equal in terms of some political rights and some of uh, access to, let's say, retirement resources or health insurance, so not completely equal. There are, they, they still provided a lot of things, but not completely. And that makes many Russians feel, you know, abused, offended, or let's say second sort of people. That doesn't mean that they want you know, to overthrow their government. But when someone come to your home, physically, I mean, some, some Russian soldier or agent, or symbolically, for example, a Russian program, Russian TV, and saying, oh, Mr. Yelena, or, you know, whoever else, you know, that there is this, there is this, there is it, and uh, what do you think if, you know, if you try, you know, to appraisal, to make appraisal, and if our soldiers come there, would you support, you know, we'll fight for your independence, you know, for your dignity? Why not? Maybe, maybe I will not personally join, you know, with arms, but if you come here and at my home, welcome. And as soon as you get these attitudes, people who are thinking like Putin and many other Russians, they immediately use it as it happened in Ukraine. So in this regard, in this context, yes, it is still possible, and uh, I completely understand Western response, including uh, that you mentioned the NATO enlargement they sent. It was a President Obama decision, and in a sense, even maybe not Donald Trump himself, but uh, some other people from the White House, you know, proved that we still, Mike Pence, for example, he visited Tallinn and said, yes, we're still, you know, obliged and don't, don't think that we'll leave you alone and so on. So I understand them as well. It's a complicated situation. There is some ground in these countries like Georgia or Armenia or Moldova, ground I mean not of course in the soil, but I mean the society, the people, who are dissatisfied by what's going on there, politically, ethnically, religiously, whatever. And when you have some group, especially you no know, significant group of people in some country who are dissatisfied with their life and their government, how, how they rule the country, it creates sort of, you know, fifth column, potentially, when some other country 
could come and say, we come here, you know, to protect you, to help you, based on Russia, whatever, no, religious, maybe orthodox, orthodox religious in case of maybe Georgia. So it's very delicate, complicated uh, issue. And uh, it's not so simple, you know, maybe some of you are thinking, aha, if he's saying it's so simple, why new democratic rulers in Ukraine or Georgia or Moldova just, you know, try to satisfy the, the expectation of those people? It's not simple because those societies also divide us. Some part of Georgians as well as Moldovians, as well as Russians, Belarusians, Ukrainians, they in favor, like myself, in favor of, you know, Western life, world life and share those values, some not. And when you are elected, if you personally elected as, you know, president of Georgia, I think that it will be quite difficult for you, you know, to satisfy all kinds of expectations and needs and hopes and fears. And that's why you will have, by definition, to balance. You know, it's general things, but what differ these countries from, let's say, I don't know, Venezuela or maybe Egypt, is that Russia is nearby there. Huge country which first is almost nine time zones, which is the largest territory country in the world, which a mighty uh, resources of nuclear weapon and so on and so far, and historically and culturally close to those countries, and Russia is not sleeping and missing their chances and opportunities. So it creates very complicated situation politically. So, and you know, my, my final, let's say, appeal to you is, Please don't think that some, if some country somewhere beyond your horizon, on the other side of the globe, do we speak about Russia or some other countries? It's far away and it's not important. And why, you know, United States and the White House or Congress locate a lot of money for that, for that, for that. It's better to invest here in Knoxville and, you know, to change another boulevard. And it's true on the one hand, but on the other hand, those who is happening there beyond your horizon sooner or later could come as a boomerang here as for example as it as it happened during last 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 election and that's why those stars from hollywood made this new organization and you know freedom morgan just you know was talking to you half an hour so it's complicated please try take in mind different things and to make sort of priorities <laughs> thank you so much Many Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.